Well, this morning we begin uh, Holy Week as we go through the book of Matthew. And Matthew dedicates 25% of, of his gospel uh, to the details of what happens to Jesus during the final week of his life. Uh, one person I read said that if you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, uh, John dedicates over half of his gospel uh, to the final week of Jesus' life. But if you take all four gospels together, about 33% of the Gospels are dedicated to what happens to Jesus during this final week. And so we do start a very somber and wonderful and great uh, aspect of the book of Matthew this week as we look at the triumphal entry. Uh, that can be found on page number 981 of your pew Bibles, and we are going to look at chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus and his disciples and the crowds drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, this is likely a familiar story to most of us as this story is typically retold every year on Palm Sunday. I pray, Father, that you would use the fact that we're looking at this story in a different season, in a different time, uh, to give us, um, I don't want to say a different perspective, but a richer and deeper understanding of who Christ is and all that he's done. And the meaning and the power behind this display on Palm Sunday of our humble Lord riding in to great shouts of praises that He deserves. Open our hearts and our eyes and our minds to understand and to worship our King. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, this story uh, reminds me of a recently engaged couple who have wildly different expectations about what married life is going to be like. There's been this underlying 
question throughout the book of Matthew about Jesus's identity. Is he the Messiah? Is he the king? Is he the son of David, the long-awaited savior of Israel? Or is he not? And here, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, a symbolic act where he is intentionally and openly fulfilling a prophecy. And so without coming out and saying it, by doing this, Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. And the crowds hear him loud and clear. They receive him as the Messiah. They welcome him as their king by shouting Hosanna to the son of David. But Jesus is not exactly the Messiah they are expecting. And so like that engaged couple with different expectations, we can see the conflicts brewing in this story. The story begins at the end of chapter 20. Uh, as Jesus is leaving Jericho, he's leaving Jericho with the crowds who followed him down from Galilee, plus all the others that he's picked up, uh, because there are many people on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem right now for Passover. Matthew tells us, they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. It's a 17-mile walk from Jericho, uphill, 3,000 feet in elevation to get to the top of the Mount of Olives, where Bethpage is. And at the top of the Mount of Olives, Jesus would have been looking over the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives actually sits about 300 feet above the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So Jesus is truly looking down on the city when he sends two disciples ahead to get the donkeys. And we read, Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. Jesus is not looking for a donkey because all of a sudden he's gotten tired. He's just walked all the way from Galilee. He's just walked up, you know, 17 miles uphill. If he was tired, he likely would have found a ride earlier. No, Jesus is purposefully setting up a scene here. He wants the crowds. He wants his disciples. He wants the religious leaders. He wants the citizens of Jerusalem. He wants everyone to see him riding a donkey into Jerusalem. And he sets up this scene by telling his disciples to go into the village and get a donkey and her colt. The donkey would have been the mom. The colt would have been her young son. And somehow Jesus knows these animals are going to be there, either because he prearranged this scenario or because in his divine power and knowledge, he just knows that those animals would be there. And then if anyone happens to ask the disciples what they're doing, taking a couple of donkeys that don't belong to them, their answer is supposed to simply be, the Lord needs them. Now this might not seem at first to be as significant of a statement as it actually is, but when Jesus says the Lord needs them, he means that he needs them, which means that he's the Lord. He's Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
Now, he could just be saying that God in general needs the donkeys, and that's likely how the disciples understood it at the time. But the most natural reading of this is that Jesus is identifying himself as the Lord. And then Matthew tells us why Jesus wants the donkeys. We're told this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, or the son of a beast of burden. So Jesus wants these donkeys because his intention is to fulfill this prophecy. In the prophecy, the king is coming to God's people as their savior. He's coming mounted on a donkey, and this donkey is a colt. He's probably never been ridden. He's the young son of a beast of burden, which is, in the original, just another way of saying a female donkey, or the mom here. And so Jesus tells his people to get the colt and the colt's mom, maybe because the colt will be more comfortable with his mom there. But so there's no doubt that Jesus is fulfilling this specific prophecy. And for the two disciples, they don't hesitate. They do exactly what Jesus asked them to do. Matthew tells us the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. This is simple obedience and trust. Because if you had asked me to go into a new town that we just rolled into and to take a couple donkeys that didn't belong to me, I would be a little concerned that someone would think I was stealing them. And Mark and Luke were told that people did ask the disciples why they were untying the donkeys, and the disciples respond by saying the Lord needs them. Which for most of us would be an incredibly inadequate answer for why it's okay to take something that doesn't belong to you. But this just goes to show us that Jesus' words because they're the very words of God, have power in themselves. John Calvin says, Only God can know such things and bend the will of men. Jesus' words have the power to bend the will of human beings. So when he speaks, he creates, and he makes this explanation satisfying. And then we're told, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So Jesus doesn't have a saddle. Uh, so the disciples put their cloaks onto the donkeys, and then Jesus sits on the cloaks. And it's not like their cloaks are fooling anyone here. Uh, this pathetic saddle doesn't make Jesus look like a king. There's nothing regal about him in this moment. In fact, he looks like a poor man from a backwater town with a few cloaks doing a poor job of being a saddle. Which reminds us that Jesus owns no property. He's never been given a degree or a title. They call him a rabbi because he has the knowledge and the power and the authority of a rabbi, but it's not like Harvard or Yale handed him a degree. He's poor. He lives off the generosity of benefactors. He's from Nazareth, which would be like being from the slums or the trailer park or the Appalachian Mountains. It's, it's a place associated with poverty and ignorance. And the religious leaders, the political authorities, 
They've all renounced him and his teaching and his miracles. And the reality of all of this is on display as Jesus rides into Jerusalem in this moment, looking like a carpenter on a donkey. And yet in spite of all appearances, in spite of what the religious leaders are saying about him, the crowds who've seen him heal and cast out demons, they've heard him teach and how everything he says sounds right and good and true, so they embrace him as their king anyway. Matthew tells us most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So they're throwing their cloaks down. They're cutting branches off because they want to spread the red carpet out in front of their king. And they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is a transliteration from Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word Hosanna, or the words Hosanna, mean save us, we pray, or save us now. But here it's used to mean something along the lines of praise him. And so if we take the word praise and replace Hosanna, what the crowds are saying is praise to the son of David. Praise him in the highest. That's what they mean. But they're quoting Psalm 118, which reads this, save us, we pray, or Hosanna, O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Psalm 118 is the last in a group of psalms used during the feasts of Israel, during the Passover, during the Feast of Tabernacles, and they're all praise psalms. And so over time, the word Hosanna seems to have morphed to mean praise him rather than save us, and actually words do this all the time. Think of the English word awful. There was a time when awful meant full of awe. And so if something was particularly breathtaking, you would say it was awful. But now, now awful means terrible and disgusting. And so that's likely what's happened to Hosanna here. It seems to be a word now that means praise him. And so the crowds are praising Jesus here. They're, they're calling him the son of David, who is the long-awaited Messiah, the true king, the savior of Israel. And they're praising him in the highest, which is the kind of praise given to God in the Psalms of Israel. So they clearly believe that Jesus is their deliverer. He's the one they've been waiting for, who would come in the name of the Lord. And Jesus accepts their praise. In fact, when Luke tells us this story, uh, he tells us that the Pharisees here rebuke Jesus for accepting the praise. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Because Jesus knows it is right to give him thanks and praise. And so it is right for him to receive their praise. So Jesus claims to be the Messiah with this symbolic act. The crowds praise him as the Messiah, and then Jesus accepts their praise, acknowledging that it is right to treat him in this way. But the people of Jerusalem, the citizens there, well, they're just getting into the adventure. Uh, Jesus has been to Jerusalem before, John tells us, several times, but this is the first time that he comes with such entourage and with uh, such publicity. 
So we read this. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So we're told the whole city of Jerusalem is stirred up. And we don't know if that's just because they're curious about this man who has the audacity to ride into Jerusalem with this open display, claiming to be the Messiah. More than likely, they're a little anxious, knowing that anyone who rides into Jerusalem like this is going to get a fight, whether they're looking for it or not. And like most of us, the last thing we want during a celebration is a fight. No one wants their holiday ruined by people fighting over politics and religion. And so the people of Jerusalem ask, who is this? And the answer from the crowds is, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the one who's been teaching and healing and performing great miracles and signs and wonders. Surely you've heard about him. We believe he's the Messiah. We believe that he's the prophet that Moses spoke about. When Moses said this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So that's the scene. That's what takes place in the triumphal entry. And if you remember, I began this morning by saying the story reminds me of a recently engaged couple who both have wildly different expectations about what married life is going to be like. And I said that because Jesus is doing more here than just claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus is claiming to be a certain kind of Messiah. And the crowds, well, they seem to be overlooking that part of it. They're so focused on his power and his miracles and their desire for someone powerful like this to come and save them from the Romans that they don't pay any attention to everything else his actions are saying. Sure, it is very symbolic and meaningful that he's fulfilling this messianic prophecy by riding in on a donkey. But it's just as symbolic and meaningful that he does it having no riches. That he has no army. That all he has is this ragtag group of disciples who themselves have no worldly credentials. He has no war horse. And the fact that he's riding in on a donkey is a symbol of peace. So it should be clear that his intention is not to overthrow the Romans when he's riding in on an animal that symbolizes peace. The actual quote from Zechariah that Matthew gives us tells us this. It says, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. And the word translated humble here we've seen two times before in the book of Matthew. The first time we saw it was back in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says this, Blessed are the meek, or the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. It's the same Greek word. And we live in a world that says the rich and the powerful and the intelligent and the connected, the ones who can pull all the strings, that's who will inherit the earth. But Jesus says it's the meek, it's the humble who will inherit the earth. Then we saw this word again in Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or humble or meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, the crowds, they saw Jesus' gentleness and his meekness and his humility. They saw that as like a disguise that he's about to throw off. Just like an engaged couple who thinks the other person is going to change after they get married. But for Jesus, the fact that he enters Jerusalem humble, in peace, and for peace is a very important part of what he's saying with his actions. A part the crowds simply ignore. Because he's not here as the conquering king. He is here as the suffering servant. Entering the city as a poor man from a backwater town, dependent on charity, without an army, and with cloaks as a poor man's saddle. And this is just the beginning of his humiliation. It's just the beginning. In less than a week, he's going to be drug out of this city on these same streets, naked and bleeding and carrying a cross. Why? Because he's gentle and lowly in heart. And his desire is to give us rest for our souls. And the only way, the only way that you and I can ever, ever have rest for our souls is if we know our sins are forgiven. And so Jesus comes to pay the ransom price for our souls. He comes to redeem us from slavery to sin and death, or as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, to free us from the tyranny of the devil. And he does it by humbly laying down his life for us and being found in human form, Paul says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because death is humiliating. There are very few things that expose the reality of human weakness and shame like our dying. And Jesus is entering Jerusalem on this day to die the most humiliating death to free us from our real enemy, which is our sin. And one day, yes, he will return as a judge, as the conquering king. One day he will come in the clouds on a war horse to free us from our pain and our suffering and our oppression and our sorrow. But on this day, he comes to save us from eternal suffering, the suffering we should be most concerned about. Do you believe this? Do you believe this is your only need in this life and that Jesus has met that need through his humility and his death? You see, part of the reason the crowds did not recognize him as the kind of savior he is openly claiming to be here 
is because they thought their real problem was a political one. Sound familiar? They thought their real problem was the fact that they were being oppressed by the Romans or the Democrats or the Republicans. They thought Jesus was here to clear the streets of Roman soldiers and return them to the greatness Israel once had under David and Solomon. But our real problem is never worldly suffering or circumstances. Our real problem is not our loneliness, as painful as it is. It's not our singleness. It's not our difficult marriage. It's not our employment or financial struggles. Our real problem is and always will be the fact that we are sinners. And if we don't believe that, then we have yet to come to grips with the reality and the depth of our sin. The fact that Jesus had to die proves that when he says we are rebels against the holy God, that is a true diagnosis. We disobey his law in our actions, in our words, and in our thoughts, but, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is from Romans 5.8. Paul will also say in this passage that, you know, a man will die for somebody who is good. But nobody goes and dies for their enemies. But Christ came and died for his enemies. Because we need to be forgiven. We need to be transformed into the kind of person who loves his law and delights in it and who desires to keep it. And if we put our trust in Jesus, that's what he promises to do. And that is freedom. And with his humility that is on display in this scene, Jesus is saying, I am that kind of savior. As we read in our call to confession earlier, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Notice Isaiah defines sin as simply turning to our own way. Sometimes we think of sin as just being heinous crimes that only that person could do, but sin is simply turning from God to our own way, to what seems right to us. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So how should we, how should you and I respond to such a great Savior? Well, the first thing we should do is repent of our sin and put our trust in him. Remember earlier I said that uh, Sadie received promises today and that she would live in those promises every day for the rest of her life. The life of a Christian is the life of repentance, ongoing, constant repentance. In fact, our assurance of salvation I believe, comes in that, that experience of continual repentance and faith, knowing that Christ and his promises are our only hope. A king who loves us enough to humble himself like this, to save us, 
is a king who is worthy of our trust and our worship. And then when we put our faith in him, we take up our cross and follow him because it is the meek who are blessed and who inherit the earth. It is those who take up their cross and follow Jesus in this kind of humility who can be his disciples. We don't pursue worldly power and glory just for the sake of power and glory. Like Christ, we are called not to be served, but regardless of how much power Christ gives us in this life, we are called to serve and to lay down our lives for others. We consider others more significant than ourselves, not looking to our own interests only, but also to the interests of others. Because Jesus left the glory of heaven to come and suffer and die in our place. And so he calls us to leave the comfort of our homes, our hobbies, and our routines to suffer and die as well so that others might come to know the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that we have found in Christ. So who is he calling you to serve in humility today? Maybe he's calling you to mentor a young person, to just be present in the life of someone for the long haul over time. Maybe he's calling you to share the gospel with someone, with a coworker or a neighbor, to invite them to church. Maybe he's calling you to make space in your life for a long, ongoing relationship with someone who is difficult for you to be around, but who desperately needs to know that someone loves them. And God has opened up your eyes to see that they need that. You see, he's inviting all of us out of our comfort zone into the abundant life, the life that's really satisfying. John Piper has this great sermon. Uh, he preached it at a passion conference. You've maybe even seen it on YouTube before. But he's talking about like how really there's no such thing as retirement for Christians. And he says, can you imagine getting to heaven and saying, look God, look at my golf swing. How, look at that, what a great golf swing I've got. Or getting to heaven and saying, look God at my seashell collection. Wouldn't you much rather be invested in the lives of others and see them come to know Jesus? To see them come to know the love and the forgiveness that you've tasted because Christ left heaven for you? And it will require humility. It's, it's humiliating to move into those relationships. It's awkward, it's uncomfortable. But it's worth it, right? The other thing this passage is asking us to consider is if there's an aspect of who Jesus is that we're ignoring. 
Some of us are drawn to the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that he has spoken clearly and powerfully in his word, and that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and is ruling and reigning right now from the right hand of God, and that we really do want to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Jesus is also, as one commentator said, the king who chooses the cross, who chooses to be slain by Rome rather than to slay the Romans. You see, sometimes we like Jesus' power, but we don't like the way he wields his power through humility, through the church, through the foolishness of preaching, through the symbolic act of baptism, and through the humility and service of his saints. Or we like that Jesus dines with tax collectors and sinners and will forgive every sin. But we don't like that he demands our worship and our absolute allegiance to him and to every word he has spoken to us in Scripture. We like to think of him as a teacher, which of course he is, but a teacher is usually someone we're allowed to disagree with. But Jesus calls us to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God, even and especially words we're inclined to disagree with. And he has authority over every aspect of our life. He has an interest and an opinion about every one of our thoughts and every one of our feelings and every one of our desires. And he has lordship over every intimate detail of our life. Why? For our good. For our good. Because in our weakness and our foolishness, we sometimes forget that our hearts really are deceitful above all else. And that we need his word as a lamp unto our feet. He is the one who tells us who we are. He is the one who gives us our identity. We don't choose it or decide it for ourselves. And he is the one who knows how to live a life of abundance and flourishing if only we would trust his word. And we're either with him or against him. There is no in-between. And so this passage invites us to embrace all of who he is, his glory, his power, his authority, and his humility. Don't be like the crowds here who ignore half of what Jesus is saying about himself, and because of that, they end up misunderstanding him and rejecting him. In the scriptures, we have all that is needed for life and godliness. We have all that God has spoken to us through his son about his son. We have the full revelation of who Jesus is, what we should believe, and how we should respond to him. It's all there on the pages of God's word. May God grant us the grace to see and believe and receive him as he truly is and as we truly are. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for Christ and his word. We're so thankful for the waters of baptism which show us that it required the blood of your Son, to save us from our sins. We pray, Father, that you would grant us the grace 
to enter into this life with the meekness and the humility of Christ. That is the blessed life. That is the life that yields the inheritance of the earth. And all of that we receive as a gift by faith. Help us to cling to Christ and Christ alone as our hope, as our strength. Help us to love him and to glory in him and all that he is and all that he's done and all that he shows us in his word. We pray this in his name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.